Good morning, everybody. Happy 4th of July weekend. May your nights be filled with blasts of fireworks all over the place. Well, maybe not if you have pets, but uh, uh, good to see you all uh, online. Thanks so much for joining us as well on this uh, holiday weekend. And uh, I would like to, my name's Tim Porter. I'm one of the pastors here. And I would, before we jump into the teaching time uh, or officially jump into the teaching time, I would like to begin with a word of thanks and then also a prayer. Uh, the word of thanks goes to all of you at Faith Community Church by the way you have far exceeded any expectations I had in how well you would care for the Prince family in this last year. For some of you who don't know, um, our beloved and my good friend uh, Tim Prince and Darcy Prince a year ago tomorrow uh, lost their middle son in a tragic, tragic accident. And um, Tim and Darcy are preparing to remember him tomorrow. And I just wanted to say thank you for how well you have cared for the prince and their, the princes and their family and for other staff who were with the princes um, traveling to vacation last year, uh, the Streams and the Christophers. Um, your love and your care and your personal attention to them has been a beautiful, powerful beautiful and powerful statement of God's goodness in the midst of deep tragedy. So I just want to say thank you. Um, and then I want to pray. I just want to pray for us as a church and pray for the princes as well uh, for tomorrow. I just want you to know they're not going to be alone. Uh, they won't be alone tomorrow. Um, they will be cared for tomorrow. And, um, and as long as with the um, Christophers and the streams as well. So... Um, and one of the things I've been asked, I've been asked this multiple times, is, you know, what can we do to help? What we can do to help? What can we do to help? Which is awesome. And one of the things I would just keep saying is just keep praying for them. Um, just keep praying for them and, uh, and caring in that kind of way. They know that you love them, and uh, they wanted me to express their thanks to you as well. So would you join me in praying for them? Father, I thank you for your mercy and your goodness. We just sang about your goodness. We just sang about your steadfast faithfulness to us in the midst of anything that life throws at us. And we've seen your faithfulness. We've seen your goodness. God, I just want to thank you for faith community in this church and where your spirit is alive and well and moving and working to help us love one another and care for one another and walk with one another in some of life's deepest, darkest pains. God, I ask that you would be with the princes as they anticipate tomorrow. As you know, Lord, um, as you anticipated your death on the cross, that the anticipation is really hard. Would you be close to the princes today? God, I ask for the princes and the Christophers and the streams that uh, you would give as much healing and comfort, O Spirit, as you are able to do this side of the resurrection. And God, I ask that we would all hunger and long for the day of the resurrection and seeing you face to face with every tear wiped away, with lives brought back to life again, never to be separated again. Thank you. 
God, we entrust as well this, um, there are other families here at Faith Community that are going through and um, being healed from significant traumas. I ask that you would continue to be close and spirit do what only you can do, which is to speak healing, powerful words to the very core of our beings as you reside in us. Thank you. And continue to help us to walk with one another. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again, faith community, again, just for all of your love and your care and your, um, yeah, care for the princes. Now, as you know from the video, we are jumping back into our series in the book of Hebrews called He is Greater. And I am grateful that we have, in one way, bracketed the series that we just finished up, I Am Not Myself, a series on identity and sexuality and transgenderism and um, marriage and our bodies. That series, we've bracketed on either side with uh, a series called He Is Greater. And that's really, really, really important for us because one of the questions that comes to the surface that whenever we're talking about sexuality or gender or marriage or our bodies and, um, and issues related to being human with sexuality, there is no end to the amount of opinions that are out there and in here about what it should look like and what it all means. But when we're looking at, when we're bracketing that series, either side by a series called He Is Greater, one of the important things to come to is if Jesus is greater, if he really is greater than any other human being, than any, anyone else out there, then his opinion on all that we talked about in the last four weeks is the most important opinion and everybody else is silent. Because the question is, isn't always like, do I like what Jesus says? The question is, is he good enough and is he great enough to say what he says? Because if he does, if he is, then I'll listen to him. But if not, then I'll walk away from him. Now this talk today, this teaching today is just as relevant as the last couple weeks have been and maybe even more relevant because this is about something that everybody wrestles with. And that is whether or not our relationship with God is based in something that I do or is based in something that God has done. And those are two different ways of relating to God and two vastly different ways of relating to God. One is the, uh, my relationship with God is all based on what I do, is the logic and the foundation behind every other religion that's out there. My relationship with the Lord, knowing the Lord is actually based in what God has done, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. And the differences can be seen in some of our conversations. A few, some time ago in the evening, I was hanging out with some friends and we were talking about all different things in life and then the conversation got really serious really quickly because my friend, one of my friends said, hey, I'm not afraid to die. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I'm interested to see why he's not afraid to die because there are times when I'm afraid to die. Why is he so unafraid to die? He said, I'm not afraid to die because I know where I'm going when I die. Even more interesting statement because, quite frankly, this friend of mine at the time, he had a Christian worldview. He grew up as a religious Christian, but he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. 
So I was intrigued to see how he would say the basis for him not being afraid. And so one of my other friends asked him and said, so tell me why. Why are you not afraid to die? And why do you think you're going to heaven when you die? He said, because of my work. Because of the work I do. I'm excellent at it. It's important. I serve people. Because of my work. Another friend jumped in. That's not how you get to heaven. The way to experience heaven is with Jesus, not with your work. And then I jumped in and I said, and that is amazing news. Because if it's dependent on something I do, if heaven is dependent on something I do, then it's dependent on something I could lose it dependent on something I do. And the Lord and Jesus comes and says, it's all dependent on what I do. And that's what we're talking about today. That's what the passage that we're looking at today is. Is our relationship with God based in something I do? Or is my relationship with God based in something that he has done? And one of the reasons why this is so important, not just as you're investigating Jesus to think about this and to know this, it's also as followers of Jesus because that default category, that default heart mechanism that we all have to make our relationship with God about something that I do, that I can contribute to, doesn't go away when you become a follower of Jesus. It still needs to be worked through and, it still, and grace still needs to be remembered and coming back to God's love still needs to be the foundation of our relationship with God because we can be so easily brought back into religion when Jesus puts himself forward as it's about me. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter eight, verses one through 13. It's found on page 1005 in the Bibles in front of you or under your chairs. If you'd like to turn there, if you don't have your own, it'll also be on the screen above. And if you're new to faith community, I will be, once I read through this passage, I'm gonna say this is the word of the Lord and we'll all say together, uh, thanks be to God, just reminding us that this isn't about what we're saying, this is about what God is saying. So Hebrews chapter eight, verse one. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Talking about Jesus here. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, now this is the Lord speaking, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, just as a reminder, and for those of you who are maybe joining up with us for the first time, uh, we're in this series on the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews was a letter written originally to first followers of Jesus uh, living in most likely the city of Rome or at least some large urban center. And the recipients, at least it seems like many of the recipients, those first followers of Jesus, they grew up Jewish. They knew, the Mos- they knew about Moses, they knew the Ten Commandments, they knew the covenants that God had made, they knew the laws, they knew the stipulations, they knew the promises. Um, they would most often take an annual trek to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and the high priest who sets up the sacrifice and sacrifices. I mean, they knew all the different things that were going on and they grew up that way. And then they met Jesus. And Jesus says that he's the one who fulfills all those sacrifices, all the temple, all that kind of stuff. He fulfills it all, and so they don't need to, and they, don't, they shouldn't actually live within that same kind of structure anymore, go back to the temple, but that was what they were tempted to do. Now, you can sort of imagine, this is like foreign to us, but you know, being in the first century, you grew up Jewish, you uh, knew about the laws, the covenants, you knew about the sacrifices, you knew about certain holy days that you had to follow, all that kind of stuff. And some of your neighbors as well, who weren't Christians or who weren't Jewish, they were Gentiles, they had temples on every street corner. And so you can imagine a conversation that a first follower of Jesus might have, either with a neighbor or with a family member who was still Jewish. Like, okay, so you say you're religious, right? Yeah. Where's your temple? Oh, we don't have one. Everybody's got a temple. No, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. And strangely enough, because of what Jesus has done, he tells us that the Holy Spirit has come into our bodies, our very bodies, that we're the temple of of God. Okay, you don't have a temple? Okay. So what about priests? Oh, we don't have a priest either. What do you mean you don't have a priest? Well, we sort of have a priest, but he doesn't do any work. He's done. Jesus is our priest. He took care of everything. Okay, well, how do you get rid of sin? What do you do for sacrifices? Well, I mean... Jesus was the high priest. He was actually the sacrifice who paid for those sins. You can start to see how weird it would be to try to describe your faith in the first century because everybody has temples. Everybody has sacrifices. Everybody has priests. And the first followers of Jesus were not so much tempted. They weren't tempted to leave God, okay? They weren't tempted to abandon God, but they were tempted to try to go back to a form of knowing God, thinking it was better That is, going back to Jerusalem, going back to temple, going back to following the laws and the commandments. And in going back, they were actually going to be leaving God. And so the author is writing to them, stay with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. And he gives them three reasons to stay with Jesus. 
a new covenant. There's a new covenant with new promises, with better promises, and a great high priest. First is a new covenant. Now, covenant language is mentioned here. We don't talk about covenants that much. We talk more about entering into an agreement. But whenever I do a wedding, I always talk about a covenant because the more personal, the more intimate of a relationship that there is, the more personal and intimate, the bigger the covenant and the stronger the covenant that has to be set up to reinforce it. And so a wedding ceremony is establishing a covenant between two people, a man and a woman. And you'll notice that in every covenant, there's promises that are being made. Where a husband and a wife are saying back and forth to one another, back and forth to one another, that I promise to do this, I promise to do this, I promise to do this. That's how a covenant is established. Now God relates to us as human beings through a covenant, through these agreements. And there's two covenants that are sort of strongly operating or at least described in the Bible. There's the old covenant and then there's the new covenant. And your Bible's even actually divided this kind of way because we use the word testament. Testament is just a synonym for covenant. So you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old covenant and new covenant. And what the author of Hebrews wants his first, the first followers of Jesus to remember and for you and me to remember and let sink into our hearts is that God did set up an old covenant at one point in time with the people of Israel. But there were problems with the covenant. And so God says that he's going to set up a new one. Quoting in this section from Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, so in the old covenant itself, Jeremiah says, speaking for the Lord, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the old covenant, God speaking in the time of the old covenant is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. And when the new covenant comes, that means the old covenant is old. It's obsolete, doesn't work anymore, it's been fulfilled. And the reason why God does this is because he finds fault. It's not that God wasn't gracious, it's not on God's side in setting up the covenant, it's on human heart side where the problem is. The author lets us know for if that first covenant had been faultless, that there's, there was no problems with it, in other words, that first covenant had been faultless, there'd be no occasion for a second one to come. Now, that covenant that God made, the old covenant that God made with the people of Israel, ended up that they experienced all the curses that God said would come upon them if they weren't faithful to the covenant. They would lose their land, the temple would be destroyed, and that's exactly what happened. If you read through the Old Testament, along with seeing God's amazing patience and kindness and mercy to the people of Israel over and over and over again, you also see a significant tragedy. Because nobody was able to keep that covenant. Because human hearts are too sinful. Even the bright spots in the Old Testament, Moses, Elijah, didn't keep the covenant faithfully. 
This is why the author says, they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. In other words, he gave them over to the curses that they agreed to if they weren't faithful. See, there was a problem with the covenant that God made, not again on God's side, but problem in that the people of Israel entered into that covenant thinking that they could be faithful to all the promises and all the commands on their own power, and they couldn't. They couldn't. And the Bible gives a lot of different reasons for why God set up that old covenant the way that he did. He gives a lot of different reasons. So this is just one of many, but one of the reasons why God set the covenant up the way he did, where he made promises and then they made promises to him to be faithful to him, is to humble every human heart. Because we think we think that there's something we can do that's so important, so good, so out of the ordinary, so different from anybody else, that when we do it, we can get favor from God. And the story of the Old Testament is one in which we see the frailty of humanity in relationship with a holy God. Any relationship with God that has us contributing in some way as the foundation to the relationship is doomed to fail. We've got thousands of years of this covenant as evidence for it. This tendency this tendency in us as human beings to think that we can do something to make it up to God, either for what we've done or that we could be accepted by God because of some good that we do, needs to be weeded out of our hearts because God wants to exalt us to such great stature with his forgiveness and his grace. And our unbelief in his goodness and grace keeps getting in the way. So he sets up, God says he's gonna set up a new covenant where it's not about what we do as the basis of the relationship or even having any kind of contributing factor in it. It's all about what God has done. If you notice in this new covenant, as God talks about it, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. It's all about what God does, not about what we do. And this new covenant that God has with which, through which we relate to God has brand new, has better promises than the one in the past. I'm gonna spend most of my time here about these three promises. There's three of them that I wanna highlight. And these promises, these promises, they make or they show that Christianity and following Jesus is different from any other religion that's out there. And, you know, we talk about it this way, which it's, it's sort of clumsy a little bit, but it's a little clumsy, but we talk about how Following Jesus is different than ever the religion because it's about a relationship, not about a religion. And we're gonna give a little bit of reason for that. And what's fascinating to look at is in the New Testament, the whole idea of religion is only used positively once. And I think that's in the book of James. All the other time, it's like, no, following Jesus is different than religion. 
Because at the, at the logic of religion is I do something for God to love me. The logic of Jesus is God loves you and he changes and I obey, therefore. Very different. So what does he promise to do? God promises to do something significant to our hearts because that's where the problem is in the covenant. He says in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's that meaning is that God's gonna internalize in this new covenant in relationship with God, God does something in us as human beings. He takes his commands, he takes his laws, he takes his character, he takes the things that he cares about and his heartbeat and he writes them on our hearts so that we can learn to grow and change and become more like him. It's not up to us anymore and our strength and our willpower. It's God is doing something in us. Another way the Bible talks about what this is describing here is being born again. Being born again. When we come to Jesus, it's not something that we're, we're trading in one car for another. We're trading in one God for another. It's like God has actually done something in our hearts. He's, he's remade us so that we can learn to follow him, so we can grow to follow him. It's an eternal and eternal work. And some of the internal work happens like instantaneously. I have a good friend who before he met Jesus would use, I mean, he'd like use vulgarity like he was breathing. If he stopped using vulgarity, you'd have to give him some kind of oxygen mask because that's what he did. And he knew in one hand that it was, it was sort of, it, wrong, probably wasn't the best way to describe it. It was more like it was hindering his relationships and maybe job promotion because he just, he just used vulgarity all the time and he tried to stop, he tried to stop, he tried to stop, he tried to stop, he tried to stop. One day, he really did truly, fully meet Jesus. And he would tell you this day, instantaneously, my vocabulary changed. Vulgarity, gone from his vocabulary. Some of you have experienced stuff like that, where when you came to Jesus, it was like an instantaneous change. What you, what you were battling with before or, or what you didn't like about yourself before, it was like, boom, it just changed instantaneously. That is God's work in us. That's God writing his laws on our hearts and in our minds. It's a, it's a work of God. Now, if this is true, that this is what God does, that our our obedience and our learning to follow Jesus is because of God's work. It does two things in us as followers of Jesus that are utterly unique. One, it means that we will never, if we really trust and know who God is, we will never become self-righteous. Because self-righteousness is all birthed in, I was able to change and I'm better than you and I look down on you. What's wrong with you if you can't change? But if it's about God changing us, self-righteousness is the farthest thing from our heart and what starts to grow and cultivate is a generosity and spirit where we're not critical of other people. We know that if God can change me, he can change anybody. The other thing this does is that 
There are some changes in our lives because of how we were raised or grew up and things that we were involved in before Jesus and even after following Jesus. That they just create deep ruts or deep roots into our hearts and it takes a long, long, long time to change. Some of you are fighting with sins and battling sins right now that you've been battling with for years. And one of the things that happens when you battle with a sin for years is despair starts to creep in. Will I ever be any different? And the hope, the promise of the new covenant is that God will change you exactly how he wants you to be changed in this life as much as he wants you changed before you see him face to face. God is for you in your change, even if it takes a long time. So we don't give up on people. We keep walking. It saves us from despair. This fall, we have a, another course, another round of courses starting up, and one of the courses is Freedom Groups. And it's a very important course because the, the whole basis of Freedom Groups is God writes his laws on our hearts so that we can have freedom not to do whatever we want to, not freedom to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, freedom to change to look like Jesus. Highly recommend participating in freedom groups. It's one of the most important courses that we have here at Faith Community for how to live this out. The other promise is even when we're not changing as much as we might like to change or as much as um, God has wants us to at the moment is that God will be merciful toward our iniquities. This is verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I have another friend who uh, speaks for me in a sense right, when I read an article that he wrote where he said growing up because of his father leaving his, him and his family and how his mom disciplined him and that kind of stuff, he related to God as God was always there waiting for him to mess up somehow and then come down hard on him. I don't know if you've seen those stickers or these memes where you've got Jesus peeking around the corner that says, I saw that. Have you seen those? That's how he related to God. God's just watching for him to mess up. And when he messes up, whap, watch out. But the promise of the new covenant, of a new relationship with God, the promise is that he does not remember our sins. God's not up there waiting for us to mess up. He doesn't remember our sins. And the word remember in the Bible is really important because it's, you know, God says at times where he will remember. He remembers his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so he comes in and he delivers the people of Israel out of Exodus. When God remembers something, it's not because he's like me and he's forgetful. When God remembers something, he's intentionally bringing it to mind because he's about to act faithfully to what he remembers. And so when it says he does not remember, it's a powerful metaphor to, to let us know that God will never treat us according to our sins. One author says this, God ceasing to remember our sin is not some kind of voluntary amnesia. Instead, it's in his mercy, he does not act against us according to our sin. When the Lord forgives, 
He does not call our sins to mind to punish us or berate us. He does not shake his head in disapprovement as he whispers, shame on you. What does, Jesus, what does God bring to mind when he sees our sins? Jesus' righteousness. God treats us in accordance with Jesus' righteousness, not in accordance with what we've done, but what Jesus has done. I don't know how many of you have ever gone into a big presentation at work and a lot, of, a lot of money is based on that and you're a Christian and you're like, man, I better pray today so that goes well. There's a part of that logic that's like, I've got to do something so God shows me favor. That's religion, not Jesus. Or maybe you go through some tragedy or maybe even something just bad happens. Your, your car breaks down and you're looking, you're scanning back, oh, maybe my car broke down because I did this yesterday and I shouldn't have done that and God's trying to punish me. That is religion. It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. The promise, the better promise, is that he does not, he does not, he will not Remember our sins. Question. Don't say it out loud. Just think it in your heart. What makes a successful Christian? If you were to describe, somebody were to ask you, sitting down, what's a successful Christian? You would say, what would it be? Okay. Now, the reason why I ask that question is because so easily, we can start to say a good Christian does this, a good Christian does that, a good Christian prays a lot, a good Christian is devoted, a good Christian is this, a good Christian is that. And one of the realities that we have to come to grips with is that in talking about being a good Christian, a lot of times the, the religion that's in our heart and the religion of the world puts extraordinary pressures on us as followers of Jesus to perform so that we're good Christians successful Christians when the better promise of the new covenant is not that we are successful by how, many, how much money we have, how much works of service we do, how much even how much we pray. The success of a Christian is knowing the Lord. Just simply knowing him from the greatest to the least of the people, to know him. Notice what it says. The greatest promise is that they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. When people find out that um, I'm a pastor, or I'm talking to them about Jesus, they automatically think, oh, you want me to be religious. And usually, I've mentioned this before, usually people, when they find out I'm a pastor, they start thinking about all the swear words that they've used. They're like, oh man, oh, bummer, you know? So I'm like, I was after I was like, I'm just a human being. I have no, like, I've got no more access to Jesus than you do. But the other thing that's really hard for um, people to hear, especially in our culture, is that we tend to think following Jesus is, you want me to become more religious. And that's not what the Bible wants. The Bible wants, and what God wants, what he tells us is he just wants a relationship with us. A relationship that he made us for and that he saves us for. That's the heartbeat. The least Christian 
In other words, the most unsuccessful Christian is still more successful than any other human being. Why? Because we know the Lord. Sometimes it helps to have somebody coming in from the outside, um, you know, that hasn't grown up in the church, maybe like I did around Christian things, to see some of the differences between religion and Jesus and how that religion is still in our hearts. One guy tells the story of his coming to Jesus. His name is Rick, and he was interviewed, and this is a little bit of the interview. Rick is, or Rick has an infectious sense of enthusiasm for almost everything. He's 34 years old, he works as a doctor, and he describes himself, or he describes the idea, his idea of a perfect Saturday as heading to the coast, swimming in the ocean, enjoying a big barbecue afterwards. But Rick grew up as a Hindu. And so one of the questions is, okay, Rick, as a Hindu, what, what, what did you do? What, what was it all about? And he said, well, Hindus believe in a God that is expressed in a variety of different forms. There's a goddess for money and a God of education and so on. And we had a shrine even in our house with images of different gods and goddesses that we'd pray to regularly, asking them to bless us so we could live a good life and do good to others. Does that sound familiar to like cultural Christianity at all? And the reason why we did this is because in your Hinduism, your good works determine what happens when you die. If you've lived a bad life, then you'll be punished by reincarnated, being reincarnated into the animal kingdom. But if you live a good life, then God will bless you and reincarnate, reincarnate you into a better life. How in the world did you become a follower of Jesus? When you were raised as a Hindu, he said, well, just need to know in a million years, I would have ne never guessed that I would, I would become a Christian. But it all started when I made friends with some Christians who encouraged me and another Buddhist friend of theirs to investigate Jesus for ourselves. And this involved going to the house of a guy called Ed. And a group of us would have a meal together and look at the Bible together. In other words, they were experiencing and going through a missional community. This is why missional communities are so important for making more and better disciples of Jesus. Rick says though, but these evening discussions about the Bible, he uh, caused more questions than answers at first. And he said, one of the things that I really, really grappled with was this. I could see that Jesus came and performed all these miracles that only God could do. Therefore, he must have been God's son. And it was clear that he was innocent. He never did anything wrong. But why? Why then was he unjustly, wrongly punished by being killed on a cross? I couldn't make sense of it. Rick struggled to find the words to explain what was going on inside of him as he was wrestle, wrestling through these. He said, I'll just describe it as a slow, dawning realization that I personally had a spiritual problem. I came to see my own moral failures, why my best wasn't good enough, and why I couldn't even meet my own goals or my parents' expectations as a Hindu, let alone meet the expectations that God would have for me. I saw that I had a problem, and that problem was my own sinful heart. This, says Rick, was when it started to click. Sin was what explained the cross and answered my question of why did Jesus die? Because that punishment that my mom, he's British, because that punishment that my mom told me was coming from God against me when I was a bad kid, Jesus took it for me. Because of his love so that I can be right with God instead. Jesus was God's son who became a man, lived the perfect life, and died the death that can save me and us. 
Rick goes on a little bit more. He still struggled with some of the things about coming to Jesus, and he talked about how he was really taken aback by the reality that Gandhi most likely will not be in heaven. He said, this brilliant man who changed the course of India's history would go to hell if he didn't believe in Jesus and that Paul of Sarsis, the first century man who imprisoned and killed Christians just for being Christians before, uh, before becoming one himself would go to heaven just because, he didn't, just because he did believe in Jesus? I left that Bible study angry and significantly disappointed. It did not seem fair to me. But Rick goes on, what I hadn't understood at that stage in coming to Jesus was grace. None of our good works matter at all. We can do the kindest acts and have a hugely positive influence, but that will not get us any closer to heaven and get us any closer to rightness with God because of our problem of sin. And everybody's got that problem, regardless of who you are, where you came from, or what you've done. And it's only faith in Jesus' death and his resurrection that takes it away. And then he adds, Christianity, it's about it's about what's been done. It's not about what you do. And on this whole part of knowing the Lord, he says, because he lost family members and all kinds of family relationships were in tension because he was a Christian now and the rest of his family were Hindus. It cost him a lot. And he asked, was, Jesus, was coming to Jesus worth it? He said, I could give you a hundred reasons why. He goes, but this is the most important one. I know Jesus. I know Jesus. The greatest thing that we can give ourselves to, and it's one of the greatest promises of the new covenant, is to know the Lord. To know the Lord over and over and over again. To know him to grow in him. To make that the successful marker that I know the Lord. Religion will only get you so far. It's a relationship that he creates with us. A great high priest. One author says, in a performance-driven culture like ours, Believing that salvation and our relationship with God is a free gift may require the greatest leap of faith that any of us have to take. Because it's the religion in our hearts, it's the performance in our culture, it's the religion out there. It's just something that we receive because of what's been done by our great high priest. This passage began with a statement. I don't know if you remember it, but it began with a statement in verse one. Now the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have that kind of high priest. What's the big deal? Why is he making such a big deal about this? Well, priests in a temple structure are active all the time. They're doing stuff. They're lighting candles. They're offering prayers. They're making sacrifices. And then the high priest, his job is to do a lot of work, to do a lot of sacrificing one time a year. So pastors or ministers or priests do stuff. They're serving, right? A lot of my friends make fun of me as being a pastor because I only work one day a week. And now that I'm preaching less, 
I only work one day a month, and that's only for four or five hours, But that's a joke, sort of. But the author of Hebrews wants us to notice something really important here, that Jesus has been given a ministry, and what his ministry is is to sit down. He's seated at the right hand of God. Why make a big deal about Jesus being seated? And that that's the work that he does is being seated. It's because there's no more work for him to do. He's already done it all. See, the earthly copies of the temple, there's all kinds of sacrifices that are still going on. When, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it, but, but because Jesus went into the heavenly temple that was the real thing that the earthly temple just pointed to, he sat down because he already died. He lived the perfect life. He died, the, he died in our place and he rose again and now he is seated and his work of being seated is to let us know that it's all about what he's done, not about what we have to do. And we can really know the Lord and not be afraid that he's gonna leave us because the whole thing's about grace. I invite you to stand and we're going to sing one last song together and I'll pray for us as we do this. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you please be among us and in our praises as we sing to you. You are the way maker. You have made a way for us to know you that isn't based in anything we do, so that means we can't lose it because we didn't earn it. It's all because of what you have done. Your grace, your love, your power, your promises, your covenant, your life. Help us to live, think, breathe, your love, your grace for us. In Jesus' name, amen.